So, Bob, we have a bunch of emails here for us to read and answer. What do you say, Bob? I say, let's answer some emails. I had a sudden uh, urge to call you, like, Bobberino or <laughs> or Bobby G or the, oh. bo- the Bobster. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> dear Kirk and Bobberino. That's, that's odd that the anonymous patron is saying Bobberino. Did they actually say that? No, just joking. Oh, okay. After hearing about the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes Mm -hmm. and the Atlanta shooting, I looked at conservative and Republican subreddits to see if they were also worried because I also don't believe that all Republicans or conservatives are racist, sexist, bigoted, etc. However, I was dismayed that a lot of them in the subreddits interpret the events as, quote unquote, liberal media pushing a narrative against whites or not a hate crime because it's just one event. Or Asians are only caring because liberal media choose to report them, etc. I I just have to know, are there Republicans or conservatives that care and acknowledge anti-Asian hate? Bob, I don't know if you know anything about this, but do you have any thoughts? I, I wonder about this. Yeah. The way I would answer this question is, number one, if you're on Reddit, and I've done this before, too, You have to understand that's not necessarily a representation of conservatives. So if you go to the sub, there's a there's a subreddit that's just I think it's just called conservatives or something. And if you look at the narratives that are on those subreddits, I don't think it represents all conservatives. I think sometimes the moderators will even kick out people conservatives who have more moderate views, and it becomes really one-sided. I don't know if mm. subreddit conservative, if our conservative is like that, but I, I remember seeing that, and it's on the left, too. So I think subreddits have a tendency to get rid of the moderate voice. Mm. But the question is, you know, are there Republicans or conservatives that care about anti-Asian hate? Yeah. Uh, I have Japanese-American relatives who are Trump supporters, <laughs> and these are people that grew up in the 50s and know racism very well and know anti-Asian hate very well. Um, having said that, many liberals are freaking racist. <laughs> I mean, I live in Seattle, which is something like 90% liberal and Democrat, and I've experienced racism my entire life, much less racism than I have in other parts of the country, by the way. But it's not like liberals are not racist. I mean, liberals can be some of the most racist people on the planet, really. And by the way, another thing here is that Asian American racism is not new. A lot of people right now are like, whoa, you know, there's this new thing, you know, it's like, um, no, it's randomly being talked about right now in a way that in some ways has never been talked about. Anyway, here's another email. So we have a bunch of emails about professionalism because um, last time we talked Bob, that we didn't get to all of them. Anonymous listener, she says, it took me a long time to reach out and find a counselor. I started seeing one who was a licensed clinical professional counselor, an LCPC. She was fine at first, so I slowly opened up to her. For some reason, for some reason, she started talking, she started asking me for the names of the people I was talking about. And then when I told her the names, she told me that these were clients of hers. And Mm. she told me confidential information about these people. Mm. I was so shocked, I didn't know what to do. Mm. I am worried that other people may have experienced this, and it makes me skeptical of therapy in general from other clinicians. Are there ways to help protect yourself or others from this situation? Bob, what do you think? Well, uh, two things. One is, it's a very small sample size that you have. You have a Sample size of one. So uh, hold it loosely, this feeling that you have about counselors in general, since it's it's based on, you know, like most people's views are based on your own personal experience. Uh, makes sense that you'd pay attention to your experience on the one hand. And on the other hand, you are telling us that you just have seen this one counselor. There are many, many, many good therapists who um, have good boundaries and good ethics. And um, so hold that loosely, please. Um, yeah, uh, you can do a couple things. You can speak to the counselor about, um, her, is it her? I think it's a yeah. her, yep. her behavior. You can always report her to the, your state's ethics board. Um, and, and they will intervene. Um, I, I guess those are the two things that pop into my head. Do you have any thoughts? 
Uh, a little sort of asterisk. If you hear some random voice in the back of the conversation, it is you're, you're not uh, hearing voices. It's Bob's wife, Colleen, talking oh. in the background. <laughs> so just know that because of the pandemic and we can't record in person, I cannot control all audio uh, anomalies. Uh, so I hope uh, you can barely hear it, Bob, by the way. So don't worry yeah. about it. But uh, I can't hear it hardly at all with the headphones on. Because some people are just going, wait, am I hearing? Is there something weird going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, I assume she's working, you know, because you both work she's, from home, right? So it's, it's not like she's you, on a. Yeah, she's she's working. So it's like you got to do what you got to do, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So anonymous listener, you're talking about, you're talking to your counselor she asks for names for some weird reason, and then she's like, oh, I know that person. In fact, that's a client of mine, and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, um, this is awful. It is sort of surprising, but not really. I've seen this before. It drives mm. me nuts. Mm. Why would someone do this? Well, I would say that it's due to bad training, or they forget their training. I think there's also a potential aspect of narcissism or psychopathy spectrum that you know the rules don't really apply to me i'm invincible or impaired empathy or an urge to seem knowledgeable about people you know i I, because i've had that urge when i hear about Mm -hmm. something whether it's a trainee student or client and you know like i've had famous clients before and i mean have you had any famous clients before people who uh, like people would know if, or at least a percentage of the population would know, oh, you know, a politician or, you know, some famous. Re- yeah. One. Yeah. I, I've had famous clients before. And when in conversation, the the person comes up, I, I have an urge to be like, hey, that's my client. Yeah. <laughs> or if they're on television, I'll be like, hey, that's my client. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's narcissism. You want to show off. You, you want people yeah. to think that you're special and that mm. you matter and that you're connected somehow to right. fame. And it, uh, you know, is a fleeting thought. And I mean, oh, it's ridiculous. Of course, I can't say anything. Sort of a natural human. Right. Bit. But if you're really narcissistic and sure. you're really desperate for that kind of accolade, then you will shove your better judgment uh, out of the way and you will, quote unquote, show off. And, and sometimes that can apply even to non-famous people. It's like you're connected. Right. I know I know that person. Hey, I right. know that person. That mm-hmm. person is, you know, that person comes to me and talks to me about, the, you know, they, they share things with me. And so I, I've seen that before. Now, I don't know about your therapist. They're not here to defend themselves. But uh, yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry that's happening. Mm -hmm. It is reportable to the licensing board. I mean, that is, there's really no ifs, ands, or buts about that scenario. There's no excuse. There's under no circumstances, is that okay? And so, uh, and you have every reason to uh, be shocked and and Mm -hmm. to be worried about this because for you to believe that your therapist is not talking about you with other people is delusional or, or, uh, wrong-headed that you know there's if this and this therapist needs to be stopped not mm. from providing therapy per se but they need to be told what's up and that's usually what happens in situations like this is you know you, they get reported to the licensing board licensing board says you must take trainings on confidentiality and get supervised for a while they usually don't strip someone of their license completely because this isn't really unless you can demonstrate that the person uh, had that this caused tremendous amount of harm. I mean, there are people who literally have sex with their clients and only have their license taken away for like a year. So uh, uh, there are cases where it's taken away permanently. But anyway, so you're asking, you know, are there ways to help protect yourself or others from this situation? Well, um, sometimes if you're looking for a therapist, word of mouth can really help because mm-hmm. you can ask does this therapist really hold confidentiality very, you know, very important? Another thing is to tell your therapist about your concerns mm-hmm. up front and often and remind mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, I've done that before. I, I've Because as a professor and as a person who know, or at least a lot of therapists know me in the community, even before I had this podcast, I would sometimes tell my therapist, I'd be like, so by the way, I know a lot of other therapists. And if you 
talk about me with colleagues, um, that will compromise my confidentiality. And I don't want to be paranoid about that. So can you just not talk about me in any kind of way unless we talk about it first? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I th- if, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, I sure, I don't mind. Um, and it would just sort of galvanize my dedication to that with uh, some clients if, if they sort of reminded me of that. Not that necessarily somebody would, but but that that kind of, when you say such a thing, you're letting them know how important it is to you, which is, you know, going to have an influence, a positive influence on somebody holding your privacy. They might do it anyways, but now they're extra motivated. So I like the idea of speaking up about such a thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So pretty awful. I mean, have you heard yeah. of other therapists doing this sort of thing, Bob? I probably have, uh, but nothing comes to mind right now. Um, I mean, I've certainly seen other therapists, and I'm guessing you have as well, where they consult with you mm-hmm. and will give way too much identifying information. Yeah, like, that's un- happened. Unnecessary. And you're just yep. like, whoa, I'm, yep. I know exactly what who you're talking about. Why did you right. just tell me that? <laughs> like, that right. was unnecessary in this consultation. Usually, I just gently remind, we don't have a release for you to tell me that so let's keep it and i'm on i have been on listservs you know these um therapist consult websites and there's a constant admonition please don't reveal a certain level of detail that could make somebody identifiable um and then the other thing is is when i participated in a couple therapy um consultation what they always say is if anybody here if we're watching video of a couple and anybody here knows this couple please let us know and then leave the room so that we can protect the couple's privacy. Therapists take this very seriously. People right. really do care about our privacy. Our, they want to hold our confidence because it's good for us as a field, but it's also good for the welfare of the people that we serve. And therapists get into this because they wish to be helpful. Yeah, and experienced therapists or therapists that know better yeah. know that it really puts the therapist in a bind. I mean, yes. If I somehow now know, you know, if you stay in that consultation and you watch a couple that you know, uh, now whenever you see that couple, you have to act like you don't know right. stuff about them. Like that's just... That's a huge burden. Yeah. And I, I don't want that. I, I, no. I'm really bad with secrets, by the way. So it's sort of funny. At, at one level, I'm like... I would like to think of myself as very good at keeping secrets as mm-hmm. a therapist. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like I've been, uh, you know, uh, appropriately paranoid about that throughout my career. On the other hand, outside of that, I am terrible with secrets. Uh, Stacy even knows that about me. She'll, she'll say, "So I'm about to tell you something, but you have to, you know, categorize this as something that you can't tell them." You know, if, if she's telling me a secret about a friend or something, mm-hmm. and. And throughout my life, I I just have a really hard time remembering that for some reason. And uh, I don't know what it is about me. I I think I just am not sensitive to other people's. It's like if I don't feel the reason why we need to keep it secret, then it's hard for me to remember that I'm supposed to keep it secret. Right. Like they'll tell me something, and I'll and I'll say, well, I can see why that they would want to keep that secret, but they they don't need to keep that secret. It's it's not shameful or anything. It's just a normal mm-hmm. thing that it's an unfortunate thing that happened or whatever. And I have a hard time remembering because it's not emotional to me. I guess. Mm-hmm. Anyway, another email, anonymous listener. She says, I have been seeing a therapist for several years. He recently made a comment that I was attracting negative behavior from men on dating sites. This is the first time I have disagreed with something he said. I told him I disagreed, and he did not respond well. After I explained that online dating opens women up to nefarious behavior at no fault of their own, he said that I was being feisty and angry. Am I right to believe he is overstepping bounds and making assumptions? Bob, what do you think? Well, what I what I think is the accusation or the being called feisty and angry. It's the the implication is is that being angry 
or I'm not sure what feisty means, is a bad or a wrong thing, <laughs> right. right? Like I shouldn't speak up to my therapist because, you know, that's clearly a sign of resistance or my own transferential whatever. And, you know, I don't buy that. Um, you have a voice, you're using it, and your therapist is having a reaction to that probably. Yeah. Like you might be angry and yeah. whatever feisty is. Right. Yeah. And so therefore what? You shouldn't? Is that the implication here? Yeah, I like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah as a caveat before I say anything, he's not here to defend himself, and so right. we really have no idea. We don't know. But I've seen this sort of thing before. It's male privilege. For many men, they just have no idea. They're just completely ignorant to what it's like to live as a woman in oh, this yeah. society. And the the example I always give was this situation with Rebecca Watson, who was, who was a podcaster, a science uh, reporter, science podcaster. And she, it was this huge uh, controversy in the skeptical scientific nerd world. She went to this convention where there were a lot of people that knew her and it was in Vegas. And so it was late at night and she was alone. She's getting in the elevator to go back up to her hotel room. And someone else got in the elevator with her. And it was a long elevator ride up. And so it's just her and this, this, and she's short and small and this guy's tall and bigger. And, and he turns to her while they're in the elevator and he says, he says, Hey, you know, you're Rebecca Watson. I, you know, I really, I really like your, you know, your stuff. And he's, you know, he's chatting her up and she's like, Oh, okay, thanks. And, you know, she's been getting that all day because it's at a convention of some sort. And then uh, a little bit into the elevator ride, he says, you know, um, I'm having a party in, in my room right now. You, you want to join me? And she's like, no, thank you. And then uh, when they get off the elevator, uh, she's slightly worried that he might follow her off the elevator and know where what room she's in. And then she gets back into her room and she tweets or something publicly that she's like, hey, guys, if you're in an elevator with a woman by herself, don't ask her to come back to your room with you. Something like that. Well, this caused a huge uproar because a lot of people, a lot of men, a lot of privileged, un unaware men were saying, well, what's the big deal? He just, he just, you know, looks up to you and wanted to talk more with you. Uh, it was probably innocent. You're assuming what, that he's some sort of uh, criminal that wants to harm you or something. Hmm. And what she said is, no, I wasn't assuming that, but how am I supposed to know? And what, what men don't know, most men don't know, is that women are walking around in a constant state of legitimate, natural fear, under justifiable fear, is of is this the moment where I get assaulted? Because women are assaulted at an alarming high rate. And so on average, they're going to be like, well, yeah, 95% of the time, this isn't a person who wants to rape me. But a, per a percentage of the time, this is the person that is, is trying to get me. They're, they want to hurt me sexually or physically or something. This happens a lot. Most men aren't like that, but some men are. And so I can't know. And uh, for the man to ask a woman who is by herself in the elevator, it's insensitive to that possibility. It's like you're walking, it's late at night and you're downtown Seattle and you're walking down the sidewalk. It's sort of isolated and there's a woman walking in front of you and she's by herself. You're not wanting to harm her. You're not the sort, you know, you and I, Bert, uh, Bob, if we're in that situation, we know that we don't want to hurt that person. <laughs> like there's, you couldn't pay us, there's no amount of money that you could pay us that would, you know, get us to want to hurt that person. There's just nothing, we, there's nothing you could do to force us to hurt, want to hurt that person. And yet, even though I know that, I will stop and let her get very far in front of me or I'll change sides of the roads or something because I, I don't, I know she doesn't know that about me. I know that she doesn't know that I'm, that I'm not going to harm her. And so I want to give her a lot of space because I know 
because I've heard enough from women and I have empathy for it that they don't know that I'm not going to hurt her. And so, uh, so that's, that's one example of how male, male privilege, uh, can come up. And the reason why I give up the Rebecca Watson story was because it was the perfect story that would inflame privileged males and, and unaware males and, inflame women who are like, no, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't get what we deal with on a daily basis. And I was mostly aware of this, but when I heard Rebecca Watt, because I, I admit, I, my very first reaction was, why is she assuming that he's going to hurt her? But then when a little bit into it, I was like, oh yeah, of course. It's because I don't, I'm not a woman. I, I, I haven't experienced that daily fear, rational fear of of all these things happening. So when you're talking to your therapist and he's a man, it's possible that he has uh, unawareness, lack of awareness of his male privilege. And when you say anonymous listener that you are going on dating sites and you're experiencing negative behavior from men, uh, maybe for him, he's like, well, I go on dating sites and I don't get that. He's like, you know, you must be attracting that. Which is what you know. You say that he said. You said that he said he was a, that you're attracting the negative behavior from men, and that you disagreed with him. He didn't respond well, and he said you're being feisty and angry. Um, you know. So it sounds like a relationship rupture. Mm-hmm. Tell him how you feel. Mm. Uh, uh, say uh, you know. Let him have it. Just be like, I think you're exhibiting male privilege. I don't appreciate what you said. I don't appreciate the fact that you didn't respond well when I disagreed with you, and uh, let's talk about it. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity for you to get power in the world, to know your, hmm. I don't know, your entitlement to being heard, and uh, hopefully he reacts well to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you ask, you know, am I right to believe he is overstepping bounds and making assumptions? You know, I don't know. Um, you clearly don't agree and mm-hmm. you're probably hurt and you feel like he's victim blaming. So, you know, you know, just, just talk about it. And I, I hate to say this, but it, if it doesn't go well, then you have to wonder if he's the right person for you because you need to be with a therapist that understands privilege and understands your reality and understands, or at least is open to hearing about it. That's an important part of therapy is a therapist that, you know, at the very least is saying, questions themselves like, hmm, I have a client right now that's telling me that they're experiencing something. I'm having a hard time relating to it, but, you know, let me listen to that more. Let me be Mm -hmm. more curious about that, you know. So, at the very least, uh, curious because we can't expect every therapist to know every privilege and every uh, victimization pocket. This is not a, a very small pocket in society, by the way. So you sh- shouldn't be, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to, to understand. Uh, that's a funny analogy to say. Anyway, um, <laughs> Shannon. Elevator story. Yeah, yeah. What it, what it's. it's what comes to mind is the difference between intention and impact. So if I'm a man and I'm hearing, I'm reading that tweet, what I'm thinking perhaps is something like, well, me and everybody I know doesn't ever have that intention. So how could we possibly have that impact? But if I'm in a, if I'm a, and so it's a failure in my own empathy to, to understand that my intention and my impact don't have to line up and don't line up. If I'm a woman walking around in the world and this really tall guy gets in the elevator with me and I feel nervous, it doesn't matter whether that person has um, no intention to hurt me or not. That is the impact that they're having on me just by virtue of the situation. It's not good or bad. It's just what is. So um, um, I think that we can make room for this is impact regardless of intention. Yeah, and the the premise that I I usually try to put out there in conversations like this is uh, people don't walk around drumming up fears for no reason. Yeah, right. People have fears for good reasons. Now, you might not understand that fear. The fear could be overblown, but 
It's not like people wake up in the morning and say, ha, 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 I'm going to make up things to be afraid about. No one wants that. <laughs> you know, people have fears because either for completely legitimate reasons, like the ones we've been talking about, or they've been told things and that are distorted and they, uh, are, you know, you can't get them out of that in the moment at the very least. And just some compassion, some understanding, and stepping mm-hmm. outside of your own narcissism, you know, because I think that's what gets, I think what kind of is the sticking point for a lot of men is, well, I, I, I'm not like that. I'm right. not going to do, why are, I feel like you're accusing me of, no, you're not being accused of something. You're being asked to have empathy for someone else's experience. Right. Uh, so it's not about you. Right. It's about the individual who experiences a a very scared world it's sort of like when you um (laughs) i'll tell a story because it's it's awful i it's kind of been on my mind but Hmm. so we got a new puppy uh princess leia and she was uh uh she was her and her older brother obi-wan kenobi were both uh chewing on uh one of those dog chews that will disintegrate over time you know it's like a beef hide or something and you know they they just gnaw on it for a couple hours and i uh, saw her chewing away at one and she i think this might have been maybe the second one she'd ever had in her life and so but i went up to her and i i like to play games with the dog sometimes and so i i Sometimes I'll grab their their chew toy and, and give it back to them, you know, and stuff, and just kind of play, keep away, and and. But usually it's a chew toy and not something that they're eating. And so I, I went up to her, and I grabbed the chew toy, and she was like, "Hey, you know, give it back." And I I gave it back to her, and then she started kind of growling a little bit, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, come on!" And then she got real scared of me. Mm-hmm. And then she peed out of fear. She just, she just, she just started peeing. She's laying there, and, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Mm. So, <laughs> I, I didn't know this, but apparently, and maybe a lot of dog owners out there are like, "Well, yeah, of course." I mean, I've had dogs a, a lot of my life, and I've never known this particular emotional reaction before of, of just utter fear. Mm-hmm. You know, she's young, she's small. I don't know. Maybe this is the first time she's dealt with this sort of thing. She's a little skittish. And so do I, was I being intimidating in the moment? No. Was I a threat? No. <laughs> I was I was just playing a little, what I thought to be a fun game. That was my intention. But now I have an appreciation for the emotional instinctual state of a dog in that situation of, I have something that's very important to me, food, and food is, you know, survival. And this bigger alpha dog is looming over me and dominating me and taking away my coveted piece of the pie. And this is very scary to me. Hmm. So I now have a understanding of that fear. And even though I'm not being aggressive in my understanding i'm being playful i will adjust my behavior accordingly it's it's a matter of empathy of the other person's experience and that's the key is when we feel like i don't understand that even you know even if it's for people that are traditionally not held up as people we're supposed to care about like you know earlier we were talking about conservatives and republicans Hmm. And I, I, as a progressive liberal myself, I frequently will try when I can, I'm not always successful at having uh, some understanding. I try to extend myself into their shoes. You know, when I see something that a conservative is saying, I, I try to imagine, okay, where are they coming from? You know, what, what is their fear? What is their pain? I'm seeing the anger. I'm seeing something that I think is not, uh, I don't know, understandable to me. But it must be coming from a good place. It must be reasonable. People are generally reasonable. And when the, when we see unreasonable behavior, it's because they've been down a, 
a road of reasonable behavior and, and I'm seeing the end result of something that is just really quite different from my experience. And, and I find that to be a one much more comforting because it gives me hope in humanity. And two, obviously it helps me relate to a lot of various people, clients included, right? You know, it's normal to have Republican clients. And if I can't extend myself into their shoes, then what kind of therapist am I? Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Let's take a break. So you're not going to call him feisty and angry. <laughs> now you're being feisty. All right, let's take a break. We get back. Let's continue being feisty. I say yes, feisty. Hey, deserving listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is betterhelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. Let's get to some more emails here. Shannon from Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Uh, I am currently a PhD student getting my doctorate in counselor education supervision. Or actually, no, I'm going to skip Shannon's and I'm going to skip down because I remember there are other things about dating on here that were kind of related. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Hi, Dr. Kirk and Bob. You have talked about how dating is a numbers game. I have Mm -hmm. been trying to play the game, but I have experienced some horrible sexism while doing this. I have been objectified and harassed. This is an anonymous patron, by the way. Mm -hmm. I have been objectified and harassed by men online. Some of this had to do with my gender as a woman, and some of it has to do with my sexual orientation as a bisexual. Mm -hmm. This has been very triggering to me, and it makes me want to give up on the pursuit of a partner altogether. I would share the details of what has been said to me and done to me, but it would re-traumatize me, so I won't mention it. Mm. I know that Bob went on hundreds of dates before he met Colleen, Mm. but I haven't... Isn't that funny that that people know that now? That is funny. Mm -hmm. But I haven't been able to find it, but I haven't been able to make it past the disgusting and dehumanizing messages I've gotten from men Mm -hmm. to even attend a date in over a year and a half. Can you talk about dating with reference to our patriarchal heteronormative society bob what do you think um i probably can't talk about that very well um when i think about this i think of it as a trauma response to some crappy experiences uh from some men one of the things i know about the internet is that the anonymity of it permits people give or it gives people a felt sense that it's okay for them to you know mistreat people in this heinous way and um when i think of when i listen to this email what i hear is a trauma response and my my bent is not to think about um patriarchy though i'm not saying that's not relevant it's just not what i think about i think about um you your life your goals in your life which is to have love and romance and um connection and um you're inhibited by the anxiety that comes from being traumatized by this crappy behavior from you know men that you're that are writing you on the internet and my app my thought is maybe that's worth your attention maybe that's worth treating because at the end of your days maybe what you want out of your life when you're 98 and a half and you're at the jumping off place and you're looking back over it maybe what part of what you're wanting is to see uh, a life that was filled with love and connection and care and um, the things that people get out of their romantic relationships i i'd be apt to focus on that yeah, that and, uh, uh, yeah, we live in a terribly sexist, patriarchal, yeah. uh, abusive society to women uh, and objectifying of women and a biphobic, 
heteronormative society. Yeah. And uh, Bob and I, as heterosexual cis males, have the privilege of not experiencing any of that. Mm-hmm. And when you're a woman and a bisexual woman, mm-hmm. you're going to get, yeah, you're just going to, you know, because of our screwed up society, you know, anytime anyone's like, well, we're 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 beyond sexism. You know, women mm. women can do anything these days. What are we talking about? Just just go on a dating app and just sample the way women are treated on a dating app, and sample the way men are treated on a dating app, and ask yourself: Is that balanced? Mm-hmm. <laughs> are men mistreated on dating apps? Sure, but the amount of crap that women get—I mean, it is it is astounding, especially if you have something kind of particular about your profile or i don't know you you give off a certain attractive sexy vibe or something i mean there is there i've just seen it all and it is atrocious and as bob says anonymity and when you are a psychopathic sadist what better way to get your jollies off than online and i want people to really understand this we understand that there are people in the world who get off on harming other people uh, in general ways and in sexual ways. They are criminals. They are sadistic. There's something wrong with them. And they are much more likely to comment online and do these kinds of things. So when you are interacting on the Internet, the the ch- you know when you're walking down the street the chance of a psychopathic sadist uh one the chance of you running into one is pretty rare because they're pretty rare individuals two the chance of you being targeted by them uh, in most social circumstances is is actually pretty rare the chance of you coming across a psychopathic sadist online is extremely high because they're very likely cuz if you get off on harming other people sexually and just generally, to do so in person is to raise the risk of you being harmed yourself because yeah. you could be reported to the police, you could be slapped in the face, you could be, you know, shanked by someone, or uh, but you do it online, never a consequence. Mm-mm. It's just not a problem. Now, I will say that most dating apps have the ability to report people. And if someone says something, even if you're not sure, you know, report them. Because one, the website, I'm guessing, doesn't appreciate that kind of thing. It's not in their interest to allow psychopathic sadists to, to shun people from the, from the dating site and, you know, send people away. It's also possibly criminal. One of the most gleeful things that I do as a person on the Internet is banning people or reporting them. It's 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 almost a civic duty, really. Hmm. If it, when you see something, even if it's you know like ah that doesn't look quite right, stand up. That is, you're helping society by pushing back on these people. The fact that they get away with it often is because no one does anything because we're afraid of some kind of consequence. Most reporting is done anonymously. Uh, you know, websites have no interest in outing you. Uh, and causing some kind of kerfuffle. So uh, report and uh, if you want, if you feel safe enough. But at the very least, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's awful to, to think about you, an honest patron, being like, okay, it's a numbers game. I want to meet my, my soulmate, and I've got to wade through a bunch of duds and a bunch of bad fits before I get to my Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I can't even begin to meet them because of all the re-traumatization that I'm experiencing. That is, um, that is, that is unfair. It is. It's unfair. It's not right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. feel your pain, not a spatium. Well, you know, as best maybe, we can. Right? Yeah, obviously, uh, talk with your therapist about it. Yeah. Uh Report if you want. I'm guessing there are also other dating sites that have less of this. I'm just going to take a guess on that. There also might be ways of reducing the amount of abuse, like maybe modifying your profile somehow uh, to 
like if you didn't have a picture of yourself, for example, maybe that would have, you know, that would obviously lower your chance of meeting anyone. But anyway, I, I'm guessing there's a way to sort of um, mess with the over. You shouldn't have to do that, of course. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something. And again, I'm guessing there are websites, there are dating websites that just have less of this or they have more strict uh moderating protocols um, there's a lot of dating websites out there and uh, I would look into that another dating another dating app question anonymous from Singapore says I'm in my mid-20s and trying to find love I find myself being very critical of the people that I am chatting with on the dating app I pick up on things that might possibly be a red flag to reject the guy I also have problems with opening up emotionally. Also, I have a very idealized image of love and family, which I'm not sure if I'm able to create in my own life. Hmm. Is there a way to be less critical and more open? Bob, were you this way? My impression was you were not this way. I don't think I was this way. Yeah. What what, what advice do you have to, to anonymous in Singapore? As I'm a, hearing... as, a, as, a ex, as our resident expert on dating apps. Oh, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. It's been a while. Um, I'm, when I hear this, what I'm guessing is that there may be some attachment insecurity coming up. And I'm wondering about um, if you're not in personal counseling, if you would want to seek that as a way to have a corrective experience of feeling safe and connected at the same time. Um, I wonder if your brain is filtering people out, um, sort of um, reflexively saying no to this one, no to that one, um, um, as a way of protecting yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's what I heard. Your themes are you're being critical, you're looking for an excuse to reject someone, you have problems opening up emotionally, you have an idealized image of love, but you're aware, which is just fantastic. I mean, every way you're describing this, there was no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, You were just like, this is me, and I I don't know, it's kind of interesting that I do this. Yeah, I agree with Bob. It sounds self-protected, self-protective. It's safer to reject early than get rejected yourself. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that you have a critical interject from your childhood where someone was very critical of you, and now you are recreating that relationship by identifying with the abuser, essentially, and and treating everyone on the dating app as if it was you and you are now like your parent or something in that equation. It's also possible that you're just not ready to date and you're just looking for an excuse to avoid it. So I would really assess that. Yeah, nothing says you have to. You know, I did do a version of this. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. I When I was in grief over a breakup, I was on dating website and meeting people and I think I was dismissing them. Um, I don't know if, well, let's see, how do I say this? I think I was dismissing them because they weren't my ex. And I would, I think I was telling myself I won't ever be happy again. And I think really what it was for me was avoidance of grief. And when I let myself, when I started to actually grieve the loss of the thing, um, that was quite painful. Um, that was a very conscious, wakeful choice to do that. But, um, one of the best things I did. And it was only then that, um, I think my heart was open to the possibility of my Colleen, um, showing up. I think I probably would have dismissed her if I hadn't done the grieving. I feel like we should have a shirt that says we all deserve a Colleen. I like it. (laughs) Or something like that. Or I'm searching for my Colleen. Yeah, right on. (laughs) Or I hope everyone can find their own Colleen. Right. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) How would Colleen feel about that? Um, I think she'd probably feel embarrassed and tickled all at once. <laughs> you better not ever break up because there's a lot of people depending on the two of you staying together I, for, I, to, get, I, to give them hope. I think we're a pretty good safe bet, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, another possibility for you, Anonymous in Singapore, is that you have a fear of imperfection and you are a perfectionist and you're applying it to dating. Another possibility is that you've incurred some sort of elitism and you might be in a cultural pocket. Singapore can have this, by the way. It's not like the United States can't, but Singapore can as well. There are cultural pockets in various parts of the world where you have this need to impress the other elitists in your cultural pocket. And if 
there's that kind of notion flying around. You might want to kind of question the oppression that essentially the group is is imposing on you. There's another question about dating that I wanted to try to find. It was actually from Natasha from California. Where is Natasha? Here it is. Um, Upper tier patron Natasha from California. She says, is it normal or common to have a sense of elation after breaking up with someone? I have only been broken up with once, and that was awful. But every time I break up with someone, I get a sense of power. It's, I think I'm disorganized attachment, by the way. I think it's like I'm leaving them before they can leave me, and I get this sort of rush from it. It sounds pretty pathological as I'm typing it out. I realize it stems from childhood attachment wounds, but is it more predictable among certain attachment style lines like with disorganized? Bob, what do you think? I don't know, but I like that you're thinking about it, and I like that you're asking the question. And I'm curious about what you mean by rush and sense of power. Like, if you were going to be more granular in your description of that, what would you say actually happens inside you? Where do you feel it in your body? What kinds of images or stories go through your mind? Because that's where you're going to learn about yourself. So there's that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and the gang are standing in front of the big booming wizard and the smoke and the flames and he's and they're all quaking, right? They're all see all that loud and they're quaking in the smoke and so forth, right? And the dog runs over to the curtain and he yanks on it, right? And you see this vulnerable old guy behind the curtain, right? And they look at him and he look he gets he knows he's being seen and so what he does is he he says into his little mic thing, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, right? And then he pulls the curtain shut and he doesn't want to be known or seen. I get the feeling that perhaps for you, somewhere inside is some vulnerable part of you that's behind a curtain saying, I am powerful, I'm the great and powerful. But perhaps there's something inside that feels really, really vulnerable. I think that's worth your attention. I mm-hmm. hope you'll take a peek. Yeah. Yeah, disorganized attachment is characterized by fear of being harmed by closeness. The closer you get to someone, the more afraid you get because of very good reasons. You were close to people who harmed you when you were growing up. And as you get close to someone, when you're romantically involved with them, uh, there's a corresponding amount of terror that is accompanied by You, you desperately want closeness, you need closeness, and you haven't had enough of it in your life in all likelihood if you uh, suspect you suffer from disorganized attachment. And so you deserve it, you need it, and you're you're trying to get it, but as you go closer, there's uh, an increasing amount of terror and of fear, and that will harm you, you know, and it's normal to have conflict in relationships where actual harm is happening. And when we were young... We were not able to defend ourselves, but now that we're an adult, we can exert our power and defend ourselves, and that can be very, that can feel very good, you know. Uh, in the same way that, I don't know, uh, like imagine, imagine being able to go back in time mm-hmm. and telling your parents with your adult self, screw up. Like Bob, do you ever fantasize about that? Do you ever yeah, fantasize? I'll have that kind of yeah. Like what? Wish, what do you? What do you what, like what? Is, what I wish I would have done, or wish, what I wish I could have said, or yeah, yeah. I I don't. I can't say I dwell in that land too often. Though occasionally, I suppose I wander into that. Lately, it, I was thinking about a time when I did stand up for myself, and sort of curious about um, could I have taken that further? Could I have done more? And why didn't I get whacked for it? Um, that's the closest that comes to mind right now, related to what you're asking. Yeah, it could be considered, you're saying dwell. I I would say it's a corrective experience because it Mm -hmm. can at least imaginally correct for what happened. It can make us feel like, okay, I I let him have it, even though we Mm -hmm. know we didn't really do that. But a part of our emotional center believes that we did because it doesn't know Mm -hmm. the difference between imaginal Mm -hmm. and reality. And so uh, it it can be a good thing. And so when Hmm. one breaks up with someone... It's like I'm getting that experience of power and and yeah. and and boy does that feel good. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, you know, the, I think Natasha you're wondering it's just like am I a psychopath? No. <laughs> and the, it doesn't sound like it. What it sounds no. like is the normal elation from oh, I have the power. I now can do things. 
does Natasha want to have power before the breakup? Like while she's in the interaction with the person. In other words, have power and then see them later. Let's presume that, you know, they're late for the fifth time and it bugs you. Right. I could imagine being elated when you like escape from um, frustration, chronic frustration about stuff that bugs you in a relationship. And the best way, you know, is to just end the relationship and walk away. And it's like that feels powerful. I spoke up. Right. Is there a way to catch it sooner so that um, if they're late five times and you don't want that kind of life where they're going to be late a sixth time, you actually exercise your power in the relationship still in the connection with the other and they actually have an opportunity to shape up they have an op- you have an opportunity to use your voice while you're in it as opposed to use your voice as you walk away from it that could be far more scary and also um, very far reaching in terms of um, helping you heal and helping you learn how to have a voice and that you're perfectly fine having a voice and it's totally cool yeah absolutely Shannon from Pennsylvania. Let's get back to Shannon. Shannon, old, right on. Good old Penn. I am currently a PhD student getting my doctorate in counselor education and supervision. I have my master's and am currently gathering supervision hours for my LPC. I work with substance use disorder clients and co-occurring clients. My training focused on mental health counseling, but I have a recent interest from your YouTube and podcasts in working with couples. I want to do this ethically. Do you recommend any trainings or certifications specific to couples counseling that could build upon my foundation? So, Bob, this is exactly you. This is me. You come from the mental health counseling world, the licensed Mm -hmm. professional counselor world, Mm -hmm. which doesn't tend to have a lot of training in couples counseling. And Mm -hmm. for some, considered to be just not their field. There's a field called marriage and family therapy, which obviously... Uh, is geared towards that. Mm -hmm. You are now one of the best, if not the best couples counselor I know. So how'd you get there? Um, Well, circuitously, I started, I live in Seattle. So I started with uh, Gottman Method couple therapy training in large part because that was local. And I'm a bit of a training snob, so I want to go where the good trainers are. And this is like... uh, um, ground zero. This is the mothership of Gottman Method Training. So I pursued that for a number of years, I think, maybe six, seven years, something like that. And so at the I Gottman just, Institute. Yeah, through the Gottman Institute. And I did like 95 or 98% of all the things that you need to get certified in Gottman therapy and also discovered that I don't care for it. And I don't <laughs> think I was particularly helpful to people <laughs> in using it. And so Well, so I, tell me if this is true, because I actually teach this in my applied couple therapy class, which is actually starting soon. And we're going to be doing it over zoom, which is going to drive me crazy. But anyway, Mm. um, but it's a four credit class now. And that means that I have a lot more time, which I'm happy about. Anyway, uh, what I found about, what I find about Gottman, this is just personally, is that the data and the observations and the language around the four horsemen and, the understanding of what leads to goodwill and the normalization is wonderful and very helpful. But the method I find does not resonate with me. Um, I could see how it could work. You know, it's it's the same with EFT, honestly, is if someone was really into it, sort of bought into the model, I could see them making it work as a therapy for sure. Mm -hmm. But, I guess given that I was already a sort of integrative couples therapist by the time I came across the Gottman method, I always was like, oh, this does not fit with me. Same with Mm -hmm. EFT, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even though both the foundations of EFT and Gottman, I really, I really agree with and it helps me. You know, Mm -hmm. I frequently will tell couples or at least some version of uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, sure. The what is it? contempt, stonewalling, defensiveness, and criticism, something like that. Yes. And I will talk about that, I'll, or, or at least I'll assess it in my head. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I just heard contempt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas before Gottman, I don't know if I would have been as worried, I suppose, because mm-hmm. I would have been like, of course people have contempt, you know, it just happens. But but now <laughs> it's like, uh-oh, contempt, you know, alarm bells, uh, yeah. I've got, I have to help them or at least alert them to that mm-hmm. mindset as a 
as a as the fly in the or what do you what would you call it like the like a virus really that mm-hmm. infects one's love you know it 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 grows like the borg or something it assimilates <laughs> and um Anyway, I interrupted you. So, oh, so, no, no, you're fine. Uh, but do you find that to be true about Gottman? Yes. Like, I, I get the theory or I yep. get the data and it helps, but the, the method yes. isn't so helpful. I, I, yeah, that's, I, I couldn't have said it better. That's exactly how I see it. So um, I had already had some exposure to EFT and, uh, well, I went to a one-day training. And so I was at this crossroads. Do I pursue Gottman or do I sound all right? Yeah, you sound. Why? Yeah, okay. Something weird happened? Something, something sounds different. Maybe it's my earphones. Anyways, um, pursue Gottman or pursue EFT. I was sort of going to do one or the other, and EFT was Canada. It was Ottawa. That's really far away. I don't know. I didn't know I didn't know much about it. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just do this Gottman thing um, and then switch gears probably eight years ago, in large part because of um, couple therapy that Colleen and I were in at the time, which... Um, were EFT based, or at least at the time I thought it was EFT based. I, I started learning that model and started noticing a discrepancy between what EFT is and what was happening in our couple session, but stuck with the EFT anyways. And um, um, I really like that. Uh, what I like about it is it's in the present moment here and now what's happening between us. What are about the emotional messages that we're sending back and forth, which is really cool because talking about, you know, um, money or sex or how to raise the kids or whatever, you know, that felt too like mediating. Like I know how people should handle money or raise kids. I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a parent. I don't know how to do that. But what I can do is I can pay attention to the emotional messages that folks are sending back and forth and see how people are um, impacting one another and see how is it leading towards or away from a sense of connection and safety conflict cycle is going to lead people away from and so leading them towards and then oftentimes people when they're feeling safe and connected they they know they it's not such a big deal to figure out how do we want to raise kids or how do we want to spend money right there's uh as Gottman says that goodwill what does he call it um positive sentiment override between us that um you know that's that that's that stuff that happens where we have difference but we still love each other at the same time yeah so anyways, that took me, it was the hardest thing I ever learned. It took me years to um, learn it. And I, if I could do it over again, I would have um, pursued training more rigorously than I did at the beginning. So um, there's a four-day intro course, right? So you take the four, they call it externship. You take the externship, and then that sets the table for you to do the thing that they call scores train, skill, excuse me, core skills training. And that's a four-weekend um, um, course where you learn the um, various stages and steps that are involved with EFT. It's very formalized um, uh, treatment, though. I there's it's you're not stuck in the manual. There's some room for flexibility, but it is very formalized, and I find that useful. Um, what I did instead of pursuing that is I pursued supervision, thinking, all right, I'll learn this by having somebody sort of teach it to me. And I spent many, many hours in supervision with someone I really, I just loved. She was fabulous. Want to give her a shout out? Yeah, Lillian, Lillian Buchanan, my old, my old um, EFT supervisor. And, and she's Seattle. Was now she lives in Texas. Oh, okay. Uh, lovely, lovely, and a great therapist. I think anybody that's lucky enough to have Lillian for the therapist is very lucky indeed. Um, and if I could do it over again, though, I think what I would have done is I would have gone and gotten training, which when I went to finally get training, I thought this is just going to be a waste of my time because I've been doing this, you know, learning this with Lillian for years, three, four years. But actually the training itself was really eye-opening. It helped me solidify my understanding, um, helped me grow. And then I, what I found is that um, I could actually apply the... Um, I could combine that with what's happening in my supervision with Lillian and do a better job for my couple. So if it were me, that's what I would do. Um, uh, Shannon, that's what I would do as I would um, go get training in EFT. If that model appeals to you, it appeals to me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the EFT training or the principles of it are in my view, definitely a must regarding couples therapy efficacy. Yeah. And most issues that people bring into couples therapy are right down the middle of EFT. 
Now, I will say that there's a lot of roads to understanding yeah. the principles of EFT. Yes. For me, for example, EFT wasn't very popular when I was coming up, and I was much more influenced by satir and object relations and attachment theory, mm-hmm. which EFT is also influenced by. Mm-hmm. So there's other roads, and uh, but however you get to attachment-based understanding of yes, that. Uh, people's vulnerabilities, injuries, and communication, and effective communication about attachment needs and injuries uh, is um, a must. Um, yeah, God, if I were Shannon, even if I was going to pursue EFT, if I was pursuing something that were attachment-based, probably going to be okay. Right. Yeah. And then I would recommend, as Bob was saying, understanding Gottman. And you can probably get that from the books, honestly. Yeah. You wouldn't yeah. necessarily need to take the trainings. No. Uh, although um, John Gottman is a wonderful speaker. Yeah, Ju- Julie Gottman's pretty good, too. But John Gottman, is he's just so engaging and funny yeah. and <laughs> charismatic. And right. That's some he I've seen him speak in person and um, he's just uh, I don't know what it is about that guy he's just so he could be a stand up comic if he yeah he's to be. pretty funny um, I would also I would also do some ancillary training in infidelity recovery very important it's mm-hmm. really quite specific and maybe mm-hmm. discernment counseling as well mm-hmm. the other thing is is as Bob said is getting supervision from a senior couples therapist this is yeah. really critical it is uh, without the training without this you need both you need the training yeah, and the supervision because it comes down to those moment to moment you can be trained all you want but until mm-hmm. you actually run into the various walls particularly counter-transference wise that you run into as a therapist with couples because it does have the most counter-transference by far mm-hmm. You're you're not going to know how to deal with it unless you have a supervisor, mentor who can be like, okay, okay, I get you, I've been there, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Here, here's the perspective. Let's talk about it. Uh, that's really where the learning happens, in my yeah. experience. So, final word, Bob, on today's episode. Oh, you know me. Whenever you say final word, I I just like <laughs> uh, okay, must perform now, and then I drop it. <laughs> I think I just peed myself. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself and don't be ashamed of peeing yourself when you're put on the spot because (laughs) you deserve it. (laughs) 